Thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Seward & Kissel's ESG Spotlight Series. I'm Debbie Franzese, a partner in Seward & Kissel's Investment Management Group and head of the firm's ESG Task Force. Before we get started, it's important to note that the discussions on this podcast are purely for informational purposes only and are not intended and should not be considered to be legal advice and no attorney-client relationship is being created by this discussion. The opinions expressed by the individuals on this podcast, including podcast guests, are opinions of those individuals only and do not reflect the opinions of Seward and Kissel or the respective firms of those guests. Any information in this episode should also not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. So for today's discussion, we're very excited to have Gloria Neeland, Chairman and CEO of TriLink Global. Gloria, thanks so much for joining us. We're thrilled that you were able to record this podcast with us. Well, thank you. I really am thrilled to be here. I'm so excited. And so just to start off, Gloria, I know you have a really interesting background. If you could tell us a little bit about that and then also how and why you started Trilink Global. It's a really interesting story, I know. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, so I actually spent my whole career on Wall Street, always at very large financial institutions. So I had been the CEO of Bank of America Capital Management. We were about a $35 billion global asset manager. We managed all kinds of uh, strategies all over the world for all types of clients. Um, and then ultimately I got recruited by Deutsche Bank uh, to be the CEO of the private wealth management division for North America. And basically when I got recruited, it was because Deutsche Bank had just been on an acquisition spree and they had bought a bunch of companies really for the asset management business, not necessarily for the private wealth business. And so as a result, all the focus for integration was on the asset management businesses and the private wealth management businesses had really not been integrated at all. And so they had literally five different business models with five different brand names, with five different um, you know, ways of doing things in terms of systems, legal structures, everything. And so when I took over, we were losing $130 million a year in our department. And we had duplication all over the place. And, and it's really funny, and this is true. I know people think I'd say it just to be funny, but it was really true. One of the reasons I agreed to take the job was because I thought, well, you can't go anywhere from up, but up from here. Right? <laughs> yeah. it, 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 you only can make this better. Mm. And so um, in three and a half years, myself and a consultant I had brought in and my management team had orchestrated the most successful turnaround ever of any division at Deutsche Bank. Mm -hmm. And so we were you know, given a lot of accolades, paid a lot of money. And in April of 2005, we had just gotten our first quarter uh, financial results and we were hitting our 25% profit margin target. And so I took my management team out to the Yale Club in New York to celebrate that night. And walking home that night, I just really had that feeling of, wow, is that it? And I'm sure you've all had that experience where you accomplish something big and then there's a letdown, right? And I really kept thinking, well, is that what this is? It didn't feel like it. It really felt like it was much bigger. And I couldn't shake it. And um, the next day, I was flying to Florida to visit our office down there. And 
I had a book on my coffee table that had been there for years <laughs> that my brother-in-law had given me and it was called a halftime. And basically it, the whole concept is think of your life as a football game that you play in two halves. And you know, what do you do at a football game during halftime? You look strategically at how you played the first half and then you start making deliberate decisions about how you're gonna play the second half. And it made so much sense to me. And I thought, wow, I really need to be more deliberate about you know, the rest of my life uh, because I've had this amazing career. I, I have always loved my jobs. And yet I really felt like something was missing. Like my life didn't have meaning. <laughs> so I decided literally that night when I got back from Florida that I was going to quit my job and become a philanthropist. <laughs> and so I retired at the end of 2005 and became a philanthropist. And I thought, okay, now my life will have meaning. And as it turns out, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> in 2007, um, I was invited to this think tank discussion group in London. And our group's topic was, how do we use capitalism to solve social problems? And that was my proverbial light bulb. I thought, oh, wow, that is what we should be doing, right? It really is all of the private capital which is 99% of the capital in the world um, is in private capital that, that individuals control or institutions control. Um, and if we could get all of that capital um, investing in a way that really promoted companies acting more sustainably and promoted companies being involved in generating positive impact in the world, then we could make huge changes in some of the world problems. So I, I was so excited about that. And I thought, you know, I have all this background and experience. I can go help people do that. So I interviewed with a couple of funds that were calling themselves like social impact funds and or triple bottom line funds. What I found was that none of them were real investments. They were all like philanthropy disguised as an investment. And so they weren't generating market rate returns. They really didn't even have an opportunity to generate market rate returns. And, you know, I would try to explain to them, look, investors of all types, individuals and institutions, either can't or won't give up investment return to do good. So you have to understand the investor behavior in order to create an investment that they're going to want to put money in. And literally none of them wanted to hear it. Um, and so I just thought, okay, um, I will have to go do it myself and prove that you can actually have both, that investors can have investments that generate market rate return or the potential for market rate return and proof of impact investing in, I'm going to call them good, sustainable companies. And so as a result, I started Trilink at the end of 08. It took a few years of real R&D. No matter what, um, it's going to take longer and cost more than you ever imagined. I mean, here I was, you know, I had all, I was using my own money. I had all this experience, all these contacts um, and a pretty clear idea of what I wanted to do. And it took probably three times as long and cost three times as much more than I expected. Um, so it's not easy, but it was, it's definitely been rewarding. So we got our first fund launched in 2013. Okay. Um, and then it wasn't until 2017 that we launched our next funds. And so it's been a great journey. 
but it's been challenging to say the least. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's amazing. I think your story is is very inspiring, I think, on many levels, because I think a lot of people have had that experience that you described. Obviously, you were very, very, you know, early stages, you know, now I think, you know, you kind of can't pick up some type of, you know, article, newspaper, you know, without seeing the word ESG or sustainability or social responsibility, but that obviously was not the case at all in 2008. And so what was investors' reaction to, you know, kind of the fund, I guess, particularly really the first fund that you were launching? Obviously, you mentioned that there have been you know, people that were doing this and then not really generating market returns. I'm assuming investors had a lot of questions about maybe how you were going to, um, you know, do good and, and have this impact while also, you know, making money for them at the same time. Definitely. Um, and it's really funny because I so believe that this is the right thing for us to do, right, in, in the capital markets that I really thought, okay, once people start getting educated, you know, they're going to see it. And this trend is going to go so fast. So I really thought literally 10 years ago, we would be where we are today. <laughs> so it took a lot longer to get even to this place, right? And we have a long way to go. Um, and early on, I would say the my biggest um, challenges were when I would approach anyone, you know, from my capital markets, Wall Street connections, they honestly would think, oh, she's like a sheep in wolf's clothing, right? She just has this big heart and, um, you know, it's not going to be a real investment. And then if I would go to the, you know, the impact crowd conferences and all that, they would see me as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I remember I was so excited by the time we launched our first fund um, because I thought, wow, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to prove to everybody. And so we're literally when we're rolling out our first fund it was a public fund um so we were selling it through financial advisors um who we would educate and we had about a hundred financial advisors in a ballroom because we had a third-party distributor who organized all of that and uh, myself and our chief investment officer you know we're we've got our presentation together and uh, it's the first time we will be doing it for this financial advisor group and it started with what is ESG and impact and why should you care? And, you know, we, we led off with, it's so important because um, you actually can give your investors the power to help influence, you know, all of these wonderful things in the world. And ESG and impact is going to be this trend and you want to be ahead of that trend. So we're thinking like we're doing something really cool for them. We're both on stage and we can literally see all the advisors' eyes rolling back in their head <laughs> as I'm ending my part because they're trying to figure out what in the heck is she talking about? And then they really didn't even hear what Paul had to say. And so meeting was not very successful. At the end of the meeting, though, we talked to our distributor and everything. And I said, well, what if we just flip the slides, right? And we have Paul mm -hmm. lead off with, here's the investment. And here's the strategy and, you know, here's your return or like all the investment things. And then I would say, oh, and there's this great bonus that you get because, you know, all the ESG and impact stuff. And so we did that the next day for the next group. And it was 
so successful. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really interesting because it tells you a lot about how people think, right? And then from then on, led with the financial side and then brought in the ESG and impact side because then their minds were more open once they once they felt comfortable in you know what they knew then then they were willing to listen to something else um so it was it was an interesting learning experience it's really interesting that you say that because we actually just did recently in the first quarter of 2022 a survey of allocators and we had asked them you know essentially the top considerations that they were looking for when allocating for certain investment managers and by far the number one focus was really investment strategy and process and you know track record and, and pedigree and things like that and you know we had other categories as far as esg investment processes and diversity and inclusion but essentially those were you know kind of the lesser important qualities that they were looking for and you know most respondents you know kind of classified them as you know maybe number four or five on their you know kind of one through five list with these other things being much important so it's interesting to see that, um, you know, that hasn't really changed <laughs> in the, the many years since you did that presentation, but I guess it goes to, you know, show the importance of, you know, really focusing on the fact that you can get those returns while also doing good because people are not going to, you know, sacrifice the returns for that. Yes, and what's really funny is that in the early days, I was even telling you this, right, that I was trying to educate other people that, look, you can't lead with ESG and impact because people are going to assume that it's concessionary and then they're going to put it in their philanthropy bucket. In order to get their investment dollars, it's got to be a real investment. And, and it's so funny then that when we did our first presentation, right, that I led with impact, I, it was just going against everything I said. <laughs> and then it's proven to be true that nothing's changed. Um, and so I would give my own self the same advice that, you know, always lead with the investment side. Yes, no, and maybe that's good advice for, for any managers that are listening too. Yeah. you know, certainly you can lead with the, you know, the returns, um, you know, or expected returns and how you think this really benefits the overall investment process, um, but not necessarily always focusing on, you know, the ESG impact as well. Yeah. Um, one thing that we talk to, you know, a lot of our clients about who are just starting to think about ESG and incorporating it within their firm is really how they can go about doing that, even if they don't have, you know, kind of a so-called impact fund or, or aren't looking to maybe do it in the same way that you have at Trilink. Um, do you have any, you know, kind of advice for managers that are maybe, you know, smaller, just starting out, don't have kind of a dedicated ESG team, but do think that, you know, ESG integration is important as to, you know, kind of where they could start? Yeah, actually, it's a great question. I, you know, first, I, I do think it was easier for us because we were building it right from the ground up. And so we could build it this way from the start. I definitely think it's harder when you're when you've got something and then you have to you know integrate it in. Um, but the good news is that there is so much more information available now. Um, and it, I would say the first thing you have to look at is: Are you investing in public securities 
Um, and for public securities, there is more and more information now that you can incorporate into your process. And what I would say is if you're investing in public securities, then you probably don't need a dedicated ESG and impact team. Um, you might want a, a person, right? Even if it's one of your existing investment people, but you do want someone to be able to coordinate um, all of that data because there's a lot now and you need somebody to say, oh no, this is gonna be the best for us and how we integrate it. So you need someone guiding that process. And then I would just educate, you know, the rest of the team members on how to do that, as opposed to having separate people, because um, for public securities, like I said, you know, there's ratings, there's, there's just data now that you can get. And so it's much easier for us or anyone who's doing public, I mean, uh, private investments. So we make investments in private companies. So there is no public available data. So literally everything is bespoke. And um, you really, I think, do need a dedicated, it doesn't have to be a whole team. If you're small, it can be a person, um, but you definitely need more dedicated resources for something like that. However, um, our team from the beginning, our ESG and impact analysts, there was one to begin with and now it's three, um, have always operated as part of our investment team. You really do not wanna have them separate. They need to have the same perceived position in the company to um, have influence on whether or not you do a deal, right? And if they're separate, often then they won't have that same influence or they, they won't have that same ability to influence. So our ESG and impact analysts just report, you know, up through the investment side, they are part of every deal team from the very beginning. So when we get a tear sheet, the first thing we do is uh, a rating, uh, an assessment to do an ESG assessment to do a rating. So we follow the exact same process that most DFIs follow in terms of uh, assigning a rating. So a category A is higher risk from an ESG perspective. Uh, category B is, uh, you know, some risk, but not necessarily. Category C is really no risk. And that mostly, but not always, but mostly has to do with the industry that it's in. Okay. So we now avoid category A um, because it just takes so much resource to dedicate it, to be able to, to figure out that you could do it and to maybe influence those companies' behavior to be able to do it. So we will look at category Bs. And then if it's a category A, we, we knock it out right from the beginning. If it's category B, then our ESG and impact team will do the analysis first so that we're not wasting the credit people's time if we're gonna pass on it for any, and usually it's environmental social issues. Um, and so they will start on their deep dive and they'll basically say, okay, it's, it's okay to move forward from you know, this, this initial phase. And then they follow the deal all the way through the process, continuing to um, do, even deeper analysis as we go. Um, and so, you know, I would say for anybody that is doing private investing, definitely, you know, have a dedicated person, have them operate as part of the investment team and develop a process that starts with this initial screen. Um, and we are happy at TriLink always to share our processes with anybody. Um, to help educate them and um, make it easier for other people to do it. 
And so if anybody wants it, you can get a hold of uh, the Stuart and Kissel team and we'll get it to them and we're happy to share. Oh, that's um, great. I know, I know, I'm sure there would be a lot of people really interested in that. And just on the, you know, on the private company side, have you found that as ESG has become kind of a more prominent issue in the past few years, have you found that companies are more focused on it without you kind of prompting them on the issues and that they have, you know, prepared information that differs from, you know, maybe five or, or 10 years ago? Yes. Yeah, so now what's really interesting is, so we invest primarily in developing economies. And we were surprised to learn that almost every company that we looked at, definitely all of them that we've invested in, um, already had some kind of an environmental and social management plan in place. Oh, interesting. Okay. And the reason is, if, and it makes sense now when you think about it, it's like, okay, for emerging markets and, and developing economies, all of their money in the past has come from development banks. Development mm. banks require those kinds of plans to be in place. And so they were very familiar with that, you know, that type of requirement. And so it really hasn't been as big of a lift for us as we expected it to be. Um, you know, we, we didn't have that in the U.S. because our money doesn't come from development banks, it comes from capital markets. And so I think for companies here, it absolutely is becoming more commonplace. But even for the companies, you know, the, in the countries where we are, um, it has definitely uh, evolved and more, I would say that it's more standard than it used to be. Um, so there are, you know, like, for example, um, your uh, employee policies around, um, you know, maternity and paternity and time off and, and even employee related issues, they're becoming way more common than they used to be. Um, and, you know, the, I think the focus on all of those issues is definitely driving that. Um, which will make it easier and easier, right, for companies like uh, investment companies to be able to get that information and influence the company's behavior. Absolutely, yeah, because I think that's often sometimes the biggest barrier to people starting this process is A, they're concerned that they're not going to be able to get the information and then, or that it's going to be too much of a heavy lift to get it if they have a smaller staff or people that, yep. you know, maybe don't have as much experience. And so I think, you know, hopefully the standardization maybe on the public company side will make that a little bit easier for managers that are focusing there. And then, you know, I just think the general more familiarity and focus on these issues should, you know, hopefully make it easier um, for, for a lot of in, investors to yeah, you know, pursue this more so but um I just one you know I guess I would say kind of you know last question for you we could really continue this this conversation all day but um as far as you know kind of investors and their you know expectations and kind of the reporting that they're looking for if you could just, you know, talk a little bit about what you do at TriLink, I think that's something also that managers are focused on, you know, understanding that a lot of this 
you know, pressure for them to focus on ESG is coming from a lot of their investors. And then, you know, again, being a little bit unsure of kind of what that reporting looks like, you know, and, and, you know, becoming signatories, obviously, to, you know, various different organizations like PRI has obviously its own separate obligations. But I think that's something that, um, you know, our, our listeners would be interested in hearing about. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we have always felt it was it was important to do two things. One is to um, support the industry's growth and development. So we're signatories to everything. <laughs> um, and we, you know, every time something gets launched, we do a deep dive on it and we go, okay, we can get behind that. And because we want to support the industry's growth. Um, but in addition to that, we really always felt that um, accountability is so important. And accountability only comes when you track and measure something. And so we developed a system uh, from the beginning that is our, um, we have two, our environmental, social, and management, uh, governance management system. And then we have an impact uh, management system as well. And both of them start with um, sort of a baseline assessment uh, for ESG issues. It's a baseline assessment of where the company is when we start. And we do a full analysis. And, you know, if it's, um, uh, uh, let's say a sustainable forestry company, we look for the right certifications. You know, we're, we're, we're really looking for documentation of all of those things as well. Um, and then there's a lot of interaction with the company about do they meet these standards? Um, and then occasionally there will be a plan that gets put in place, like an environmental social management plan. Um, and then we will have milestones and we track against those. But for every company, we do that baseline assessment and then annually we reassess um, and then we track progress or, you know, if someone goes backward, we track that as well and we talk to them. So why did that happen? Um, and then we can also put in new plans to, to make it better. Um, and then we do something similar for our impact. We also track impact both at the, our fund level and at our borrower company level by doing a baseline assessment of where we start. And then every year we reassess and all of that information on the ESG side and the impact side gets reported out to investors in an annual sustainability and impact report. Um, and we do actually have an assurance audit of the data. So we've hired RSM um, and before that was another audit firm, but they, RSM's been doing it for a few years and they go in and do an assurance audit of all the data. And then that usually gets issued in at the end of March or early April. Um, so if anybody's interested in it, you can go online and pull a copy of our report. And, you know, again, we're happy to share forms or if anybody, you know, wants to see how we're tracking or what we're tracking, so we're more than happy to share and help educate people. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm sure people will be very interested in, in looking at that as an example. I think it's something that, you know, it's important to have that as part of your process, particularly, you know, I think for a lot of managers where they may be just, you know, starting out, but their goal is to, you know, kind of increase, you know, the integration and kind of, you know, have maybe a baseline policy that hopefully they can improve on from year to year. And it's hard to know where you need to improve if you haven't kind of measured where you're starting from. Too. Right. So. And, and I would say the other thing is that's really important is, if, especially if you're just starting, you, you made an appointment about just starting out. And I'm like, it's so important to be practical. Like, 
you know, recognize what you can do and what you can't do, but make sure whatever you do is defendable, right? Like you go through a process and you go, okay, this is very deliberate about how we're doing this. And it's very defendable for what our outcome is. Um, but again, make sure it's practical, like that you can do it because that's the worst is if you say you're going to, and then you can't. <laughs> Yes, no, absolutely. And the, you know, the SEC just came out with proposed rules for, you know, for registered investment advisors. And, you know, I think if you kind of boil down everything that they've said, that's really at the core of it, which is, you know, do what you say you're going to do and what you've told investors you're going to do. And if you've categorized yourself a certain way, make sure that that's defensible based on all of your policies and practices day to day and, and really what you're doing. And I think think, you know, that's where, you know, when I talk to clients, I always say that you need to, this is very much a situation where you need the investment team integrally involved in the policy and practices and how you're doing it. This is not something where it's like a, you know, general compliance type policy, and you're going to enforce it on the investment team. It's not like that at all. It really needs to be a joint effort because A, somebody needs to monitor it probably from the compliance or operations side, but you really need to know what the investment team is going to be doing and what's practical for them, right? If you have a team that never really does an investment memo, they're not going to write a memo on ESG because that's not their process. And so you're going to have to come up with something then that works for your organization too. So yeah, that's very good advice. <laughs> Um, well, Gloria, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great to have you. And I'm sure that everyone really learned a lot. And um, I'm sure they will be uh, probably taking you up on some of the, uh, the offer for some help as well. Um, but thank you again for joining us. And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of our Spotlight Series. Thank you, Debbie.